Hey, this is actress Carissa Lee Staples, and you're listening to the O Brother Podcast. Welcome to the O Brother Podcast. I'm your host, Dan Smith. Alongside me, as always, my brother from the same mother, Mike Smith. Hey, Dan. How's it going? Good, man. October 17th, 2020, Halloween Fest rolls yeah. on. We're in the middle of it. Just another day. <laughs> yeah, it's just one of those days where, you know, <laughs> nothing, unusual. nothing going on. No, no, you remember, let's tell a quick story. So we, we've got a special guest on the show today. But before we introduce that, it was 1985. You drove us to New Jersey. It was going to be my first Bruce Springsteen concert. Mm -hmm. And I locked these very expensive tickets in the car. $800, $400 a ticket. And this is in 1985. So it was terrifying because, I mean, it was just... The money and just the whole circumstances was was, was, a, was a panic. So we're me. getting ready to go in to the show. Getting ready to go in. You got the tickets? Oh, where are the tickets? And I had the given tickets? them to you, I think. Yeah, and I conveniently locked them in the glove box, I think, or the console inside no, the they car. No, we could see them. Oh, were they? We, we, okay. I had made the decision to let this one guy punch in the window. I think you were off looking for right. somebody... And the killer is, this was Sunday. The concert was supposed to be Friday. And through a series of fluke events, it winds up being on Sunday. The concert got canceled. Right. So I said, I paid 800 bucks for these tickets. I'm just going to let the guy break my window. What's another 60 bucks, whatever. And then all of a sudden, this tow truck pulls up. And that yeah. was you. And Got I was it. broke at this point. Because we spent the whole weekend in New Jersey, <laughs> right. I couldn't. I couldn't even pay him. Right. So he does it, and I can't give him any money. It's interesting you would mention kind of a pay it forward moment that ties into what we're about to talk about. So that was one of the most terrifying moments of my life because you know I was facing imminent death. Let's be honest. <laughs> yeah, I think when you told me, your face was pretty white. So we have on the show today. Really excited to talk to this guy, Jamie Chambers, who's an actor, producer, you know, jack of all trades in the industry and, and just in life, all the things that he's done. And look him up on IMDb yeah. and, and, and do a search and check out all the stuff he's done. He's been in huge movies. Like every major franchise. and Mission and, Impossible, uh, Star Wars, Fury. I, what I got... We've already talked to him, and what I got out of his interview was this is a guy that's very motivated. He's laid the, found wor- the, the foundation for what's going to be a big career. No doubt. And, and so we, ta- we were, you know, he was very gracious with his time. And very. We, so we, we start off the interview, we're kind of getting to know each other and, you know, thanking him for, for the time. And then we got into some, you know, some kind of interesting conversation in about, Oh, I don't know, 30 minutes in, I guess. Yeah. I discovered that I was not recording the meeting. <laughs> so I, we've talked about the number one terrifying moment in my life. This is number two, but it's, it's a close, close, it's a close race. Yeah. 
this happened to, you know, we had another similar snafu with one of our other episodes, our trivia challenge episode. Yeah. Listen, things This was much for, worse. Th- yes, it was. Things happened for a reason. And, you know, he was, Jamie was so gracious and he just like rolled with it that honestly, I do think we got, I don't think in, in having met him and talked to him now, I don't think you could get a, a bad interview from this guy. He's just so grounded and really a student of film and had a lot of fascinating stories. And the one thing that you'll hear in this interview that I think resonated with me the most is the thoughtfulness and care that he puts into the work that he's doing and the films that he's choosing and he's involved with. That was kind of a big theme for me. And and some of his projects that he's working on now are are really like important topics. I'm looking forward to seeing his future stuff. He's already laid, he's already done a lot of work. I think he's going to be, he just has a drive about him Mm -hmm. and he has a way about him. Made us, put us at ease. Yeah. Usually you're supposed to put a guest at ease. He put us at ease. Well, especially me. (laughs) (laughs) I happened to be off. I wasn't on the feed when you found out it hadn't recorded. And I was apologizing. I missed that apology. And I came on and then you had to tell me and I was like, oh, brother, <laughs> you know, this is why he, we call it this. He was unfazed. So, so enough, enough of, of listening to us. But let's get to the interview with Jamie Chambers. We hope you guys enjoy it. Check him out. He's got some great, great stuff coming your way. And a, and a lot of great stories. So here we go. Jamie Chambers interview with Oh Brother. So we want to welcome Jamie B. Chambers to the O Brother podcast, actor, producer, speaker, renaissance man, all those good things. And we, uh, we appreciate you being here today. We're really, really grateful that you're giving us this time today to be with us. I'm I feel like I've met you. I, I'm, I'm having deja vu. <laughs> I'm getting that weird thing, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, yeah. People don't know how generous you're being right now. But, you know, Mike and I, this month, we kind of kicked this month off. It's October, so everybody's in the Halloween spirit and celebrating uh, all the horror genre films. And so we've been calling it Halloween Fest with Oh Brother. And it's been fun to go back and enjoy some of these horror films because he and I are not regular watchers of that genre. But it has been enjoyable to go back. And we, we had an episode on The Invisible Man, and we just did The yeah. Shining. And we just watched uh, a little film that you might know called Slasher House 2 this week. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so do you have you, you got any memories of, of uh, the making of that particular film? Um, what a great project. Um, so, yeah, it, that was actually one of my first forays into horror in that sense and it was one of those where completely right place right time right moment I was talking with MJ who's an absolutely amazing director and it just I'd done a film called Estate and uh, after Estate I did um, Beyond Redemption which was borderline horror but not quite more thriller and Andy Gil uh, 
yeah, Andy Gilbert was speaking with MJ and they were like, oh, we just just done this stuff for this guy, but he's 30 or 29, 30. I look old anyway. But, uh, <laughs> but um, MJ was like, yeah, but I'm looking for a 60-year-old guy. And so I phoned MJ and I, I, I did a quick little tape and they were like, you can fight, you can act, but you're like 30 years too young. But um, as it happens, it was just luck of the draw and I end up on the set and fantastic experience of just good people coming together to make the project work, which was awesome. And it's got that proper old school cult feeling to it and proper American classic greens and reds, real sort of retro look. Um, being in three prosthetic masks, which you never see because they're covered by this big skull thing, um, that, that was challenging, it has to be said. <laughs> but um, no, I loved it. and. Uh, Francesca was awesome it was her first time doing massive sort of martial arts sequences so um, getting beaten up by her was fantastic <laughs> we did, did so did many you, uh, did you choreograph that scene with her where you had the, the fight yeah and the, choreo- the choreography was far far more enjoyable than the sequence because I got to wear joggers and a t-shirt and <laughs> 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 that immediately made it a lot more palatable um but it was awesome because i think it came out as something like a couple of hundred moves in the end um which we we did as a master and we got all the way through it and then it was a lot of um uh cutting and finding which ways work with the 180 rule and the 30 degree rule and things like that um we took a beating that day at one point we've both got shin guards on we've both got forearm guards on because it some angles you'll never sell unless there's contact um, but it was an awesome sequence and the fact that the film itself is setting up for the third one and it's got a fantastic cult following MJ's built this fantastic um, like horror universe and I'm much like you guys um, I, I jump in and out of horror but I don't necessarily um, I'll go watch a horror film over and over um, but yeah I mean it's it's got this it treads that line really well where some horror movies can get it wrong where it doesn't take itself too seriously. It knows what it is. It knows what it's doing. And it really does exactly what it says on the tin. I was glad you said that about the contact. Cause I, wor- I wondered about that, that scene. I- I'm like, they're belting each other in this battle here. Look like you both got clocked a few times. Yeah. Um, I mean, a lot of the stuff is um, tricks of angles and stuff like that. Um, and I'm, I'm very lucky to have worked with some fantastic stunt coordinators and performers. And some of my closest friends are uh, British stunt registered performers. And some things you get away with based on the angle and some like big punches to the face and the gut and stuff like that you can get away with. But when it comes to like the, the director wants it on the 180 and it's a two shot and at some point you're going to have to pad up and take the hit and there's there's no two ways about it so um i felt bad for francesca at certain points because typical of leading lady stuff you there's only so much armor you can hide in form fitting stuff whereas for me it was like oh i can put pads here 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 (laughs) (laughs) what's the what was the size difference there it's a it's a pretty i'm a clear clear foot taller than her Yeah, what, what, what do you stand? What's your height? Me, I'm just six foot, literally. Really? You look so much taller than that <laughs> on screen. Yeah. I, I, I'm very appreciative of any DOP that makes me look taller. 
Yeah, no, you, everything I've seen. I, like, I mean, it's not, it's not a Tom Cruise thing. I haven't got to walk around in elevated pumps, but uh, yeah, I'm barely six foot. So take us take us back a little bit to some early memories of, you know, movie going and, uh, you know, if it relates to maybe your appreciation for stunt performers. Is that something that? Yeah, I mean, my my earliest sort of TV show film thing, uh, something that I have fundamental respect for was a TV show called Red Dwarf. And that got me into watching TV as a whole and enjoying stuff because it was comedy sci-fi and uh, you guys only got a pilot over there in the States, but we, we've had 10 series. Um, but that was like, oh, I like watching things. And then for me, my earliest film memory is Terminator 2. Um, it's just an iconic film. That and Aliens, they, they stick out for me as like my first sort of go-to films. I've still got the VHS cassette of Terminator 2 from I've got the box I've got the box of Terminator 2 and it's beautiful because it's just before titles and taglines became like really sort of orthodox and everything looked the same so this one had like Terminator 2 and Schwarzenegger and then you've got the blue and black title but then you've got all this writing down the bottom where Cameron was like no the log line's like 10 paragraphs long (laughs) (laughs) it it for me, that film was sci-fi, horror, action. It had all those things encompassed because obviously Terminator, the Terminator, um, is an out-and-out horror film. Regardless of the sci-fi elements, it's, it's a Michael Myers-type Halloween film. It's uh, the monster chasing the, the end girl. And for Terminator 2 to flip it on its head and you still get those fantastic horror elements with the T-1000, which... At the time, watching that film, I, I couldn't have been more than like six. Um, though, those are quite graphic and practical horror elements, which are awesome. Um, so, yeah, my earliest moment is Terminator 2. We loved it because, Mike, remember, we, we used to go Universal Studios in, here That's in Florida. Right. Had and this- they filmed Terminator 3D. And it was a lot of fun because they brought back the cast and... and- it was really, it was really uh, like back to the original, which I was going to ask because all the iterations afterward, some were okay, some were good, you know, and they just brought it back to kind of its roots. Any of them? I, I personally think with Terminator, it was on a downhill trajectory at three. Um, Rise of the Machines was like the beginning of the end. Um, it, it knew what it was and it took, it, it, took too much of a joke out of itself um literally from like the first introduction of the t800 with the 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 stripper sunglasses and um the talk to the hand moment and i was like this isn't my terminator anymore um and even listening to the arnold commentary on terminator 3 you could tell that he was like oh no we just did this because it was fun and it's like no, no, that's not Terminator. Terminator is meant to be horror, sci-fi, action. And for me, Dark Fate, it's not the worst film ever made. Yeah. That, that honor goes to Suicide Squad. But it's... <laughs> <laughs> but, um, we can relate. Yeah. But for me, it was like, no, stop stop flogging this dead horse now. Let, let it go. Um, for me, it's Terminator 1, Terminator 2, Terminator 3D and then finish on Terminator 3 because it's it's the 
in terms of that film, at least you get to the point of Independence Day and you get to the point of Skynet becoming sentient and then done. No more. Yeah. Um, love Christian Bale. I really do. But he's not John Connor. He's just not. Yeah. Um, and then with Genesis, um, you can't make John Connor the bad guy. That's the, yeah. So they, all these missteps all the way along. And then to kill John Connor in the sixth is like, well, I give up. No, right, I, right. Yeah. So for me, certain franchises you can leave alone. Uh, Terminator, you can leave alone. Alien, you can leave alone. Um, Rocky, Rambo, the, these franchises you can just let be now. Um, they they deserve cult status and they deserve to sort of just be preserved, much like Godfather. They much they they deserve to be preserved where they are. There's no need to rinse more money out of them. Certain franchises deserve reboots and deserve to be redone. Transformers could do with that, but for me. Yeah, um, Terminator stops at three. Now, you mentioned Godfather. Quick, I have to ask, Mike, what, Jamie, what are your thoughts about The Godfather Part 3? <laughs> this is why you don't change the writer. Um, yeah, um, <laughs> for me, there were so many loose ends, and I, I know from being a massive film geek that there was it was a tumultuous set to work on, and you had big egos not learning their lines and things like that and they got to a point where people were fighting people just for time on screen and things like that and giving uh status to people that didn't need it or characters that didn't warrant it and for me when you peaked because godfather and godfather 2 are examples again of where you do it right terminator 1 terminator 2 alien aliens godfather godfather 2 and uh all, all these sort of films prove right. Do the do the first film, do the sequel, leave it alone. Um, and it doesn't quite overstep, but at the same time, you're like, this is unnecessary. This doesn't add anything to what was given to us in the, the first six hours of Godfather, you know? Well, we won't try to persuade you, but we did do a whole episode on why people should love that film. <laughs> <laughs> it was a trick question. It was a trick question, yeah. <laughs> uh, you, you can't bend my arm on Godfather 3. <laughs> yeah, well, it's been the butt of so many jokes. We figured, you know, let's go back and analyze the film for what it was. And the new cut is coming out. Yeah, and and... I guess it was never supposed to be a trilogy. It was supposed to be a coda, and... So it'll be interesting, I think, to see what Francis does with, you know, yeah. I, I don't expect it to be a money grab, but we'll see. Yeah, for me, um, I'm always intrigued because uh, of this whole Snyder Cut thing that's going on with DC. Yeah, seventy million I read last night. Yeah, so so that the whole thing with like director's cuts, and I mean, the most iconic thing about director's cuts would be Blade Runner for me because there's right. like six or ten versions of that film. right so for me i it's about interference and studio interference and producer interference and things like that and for me either get the director you want and let them do it or sack that director and go and find the one you need um uh, solo is another perfect example of we've got the wrong director it's going sideways pull them out put in the director you need. And Ron Howard proved you can salvage something. You can do well. We both like that a lot. And for somebody who's been on, who's been a star, you know, stormtrooper, we, we're both 
you know, big fans. Yeah, you may and, have picked up on the subtlety. I didn't want a fanboy, but I mean. Oh, uh, yeah, I didn't even notice little, it till A now. little tip of the hat there to you. So you've <laughs> been on, on sets like Slasher House 2, and then you've been on these gigantic sets like Fury and, you know, so many. What's the difference? And, what, you know, for you, you know, how do you act differently or, or do you? I I refuse to behave differently from one set to the next. I think there 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 will be something inherently ingenuous, if uh, disingenuous even, if you are a different person from your low budget indie to your multi million pound feature. Um, for me, I was brought up on the principles that it doesn't matter if it's the CEO or the cleaner, you treat everyone the same. So from my perspective. They're less personal in, in terms of the fact that on an indie, you know everyone intimately in terms of what time they get up and how they have their coffee and things like that. Um, what time they get grouchy on set. Whereas you slide that across, you've got so many departments and such size and so many units on huge features. I mean, Star Wars is a perfect example. The, um, the Jakku set, the practical set that we were on in Abu Dhabi, the size was insane. The, we're, we're talking, it was measured in miles, not meters. So like from that alone, that was incredible to work on and to, to be on the salt flats where it just looks forever. And uh, Skywalker Valley, where Ray is introduced at the start of the film, being, being involved with that, because that scene itself, took forever because it was so hot and to try and get that sled to go down that the, the side of the dune that shot in itself took half a day and it should have taken one minute so yeah for me i don't change i refuse to change um i i would much rather everyone say the same thing about me on every single step than oh no he was like this over here but then he went on this and yeah it's much easier just to be the same person always just not authentic, yeah, if you're not. Yeah, exactly. And it's if you really love acting, you're doing the same thing, you know? I mean, inside, whether you're doing a play in high school or, you know, you're in a Star Wars film, inside it feels the same. But yeah, I mean, that's one, one of my biggest regrets is not, and it's the best regret to have is to not have done something sooner. And that, that's my only thing about, performing acting that sort of plethora of things is i wish i got it just had the bottle to go into it sooner that that's it um everything else it's the best mistake i ever made but like it for me it was like yeah i didn't do this in high school i didn't do this in college i didn't do this in university and like i didn't have that foot in that grounding of like the amateur dramatics or even i mean i'm very lucky in terms of who actually gave me acting guidance um but it was one of those where like i didn't have a footing to begin with and that's that's my only real regret about that is not having it much sooner right now right. you went to university in the uk i mean yeah was, was was film part of those studies or what was your pursuit there <laughs> not even a little bit um, <laughs> <laughs> so i was still heavily involved in sport and I, I sat down with my parents at 18, 17, 18, and I was like, done college. I've, 
I've got some vocational stuff done, still doing like relatively high-end sport. What do I do? And the sort of overriding theme that came out of that conversation was what happens if you can't perform? What happens if physically you're no longer able? And for me, university became that logical end to education. It wasn't what I did. It was getting there and doing it and to to get the bachelor's degree and to have that experience of i mean i I was terrible at uni i was i was just awful i was out of my depth um i i knew this was like as far as i could push my education i nothing has ever come easy to me in that sense um i'm not naturally gifted with the ability just to learn um everything involves sitting down repetition learn it do it forget it and then learn it again (laughs) (laughs) so um my my degree is uh biomechanics um international politics um all based around sport um and that 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 gave me a real appreciation now when i'm learning 150 page scripts because it's like you'll you'll know better than anyone guys uh you never film anything chronologically you never film anything in order so it, it gave me a real appreciation of like right page 120 um my character's done this 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 and this and this has all happened so i've got to look this way and feel this way and do that and then the next day you're filming page one and that was that real appreciation so as much as i've not used my degree in any way <laughs> apart from letters at the end of my name um apart from that i mean it's been helpful in more vocational ways i think that's something that i would worry about you know you talk about scripts i always thought i don't know that i could just remember my lines and mike you you know you you had that experience with acting yeah i mean it's it's just one of those things you you sit with it and you just keep going over and you, hopefully you have a scene partner and you can drill with them. And I, I was curious too, cause you know, we look at your resume and you know, a lot of film. Did you do any stage uh, stuff? That's one of the things where like, um, I've always left that Avenue open. Um, but I think the real thing is, I need a director to be shouting at me, telling me how awful I am. I, <laughs> I think, I think the, um, the live side of things is something where I've got a huge amount of respect for it. I've got friends that are in Lion King, Aladdin, um, and sort of the high-end West End shows. And it does appeal, but at the same time, it doesn't have that same excitement for me as TV and film. Um, I think because you can go again so many different ways in a film or um, from scene to scene and shot to shot, or you can literally just say, that was awful, we can go again. Um, I I had it recently on American Monster and going into this dingy basement with a flashlight um, playing this San Francisco cop. And I find this corpse and I'm radioing it in and in my head, I knew the lines that I was doing. I knew what I was saying, and I still got it wrong. <laughs> <laughs> it was only a simple mistake, and we uh, it would be fixed with ADR, no issue. But in my head, I, 
nailed nailed everything i was like that was beat for beat i'd made sure that the, the flashlight went across the camera so you got the jj abrams lens flare all that sort of stuff i was like i've nailed this and then said the lines wrong <laughs> so it was like um yeah just stop go again but in live performance you haven't got that you haven't got that crutch and i personally i don't rate myself highly enough as a stage actor, I, I think stage acting is an incredible talent to have and the skill to be able. I mean, I was watching um, Ian McKellen, Patrick Stewart, Waiting for Godot, and it's just incredible. Um, the fact that they know this, this play verbatim and whether it be something a bit more classical or whether it be uh, full traditional Shakespeare, contemporary, I've got huge respect for it. I'm not entirely sure I can do it. Yeah, and something like Waiting for Godot, it, it, it's, it has so many loops. I can remember doing a similar uh, play in college, and we were in one of these loops, very similar, and your brain, if you don't keep track of the loop you're in, <laughs> you're looking at the actor like, I don't know where I am, and you can almost talk to each other with your eyes. The, the one thing, you know, film acting – from you know my own experience which is very little but other people i know is there's a lot of waiting you know they've got to set up the lights they got to set up this they got to set up that and what do you do and i have a feeling i know the answer to this but i want to throw it at you and see so what you the tagline for the film industry in the uk is hurry up and wait that's that's basically what it is um what we do i mean we're quite lucky over here because for the most part we're either in a situation where we've got a lot of rehearsals to do so any downtime any time away it's used straight away it's rehearsal it's repetition um so a lot of the stuff that i do in an action capacity i'm with other performers that are just raring to go so a perfect example was um Beowulf, where we were doing the final fight sequence on that and the setup for it was taking way longer than we thought because they wanted it to look like natural light coming through windows so big setups of redheads and things like that so we had three or four hours where we could have just been down and just sat and just enjoyed but instead it was repetition of fight sequences over and over and over beat for beat time for time making sure the, you take the bumps at the right time, all that sort of stuff. Um, different occasions where like uh, you appreciate from down, uh, the downtime on things like Fury. Uh, I was on Fury for uh, six months in total. Wow. From, from like first day previs um, at Pinewood through to rap last day um, at um, the, out in the fields in Watford. And on those days, on occasion, you've got to grab five minutes where you're not sprinting across a field or getting rigged up for something. Um, so, yeah, it, do, it does depend on the project you're on. But for me, for the most part, I can't sit still for too long. So, <laughs> yeah, I, I've got to be doing or being or trying. Um, I, I turned up uh, for Dark Angel a few years back. I got a phone call saying we need someone to play a, a hangman. So I got the lines, got sent through um, it was just a couple of days up in York. And um, my, uh, th this runner came up to me and said, oh, um, your, your trailer's over here. And I was like, nah, don't worry about it. Um, 
where's the DOP that I can annoy for an right, hour? Right. <laughs> you know, where, where can I go and learn something? Where can I go and see something? So, yeah, I'd, I'd rather be sat with a member of the crew um, watching how a director or a first AD works. Um, I mean, directors and DOPs and first ADs are some of my favorite people because the way they marshal a film set, not just in camera, but behind camera is incredible. Um, I mean, Toby Heffernan has got to be one of the best first ADs I've ever seen. Absolutely incredible. He's now exec producer on like Rogue One and Solo and stuff like that. And to watch him work was astounding. Absolutely incredible. Um, so yeah, uh, there is no downtime for me. I'm always doing something. <laughs> I guessed that's where you, that's the rabbit hole you were going down. Cause a lot of times, you know, cut actors go to the trailer, they go to craft services. I had this feeling you were the guy that would stay on set because you can yeah. learn so much. There's always something you can on. do on set as well. Um, but, and it's little things. Uh, I, I, I'm a massive advocate of pay it forward. Um, so little things like if people are moving rigs or changing setup, it, it might be as small as moving a sandbag or some mats or just asking someone, do you want a hand or do you want me to hold that? You know, little, little things. Um, and it makes a huge difference. And you learn something in the process. Like I love learning about um, anything to do with the setup for something in camera. So uh, tripods, sliders, all that sort of stuff, how lighting affects. Um, I mean, in lockdown, I learned how to use a green screen because it was like, right, that, how do I learn this? Because I'm not allowed to go outside, like <laughs> little right. things, but it made a big difference. Yeah. I wanted to ask that too. You've got, you know, with acting and producing, is there an interest in directing? Is that something you've like, where? Um, I think second unit direction is something I'd be massively open to because there's the action element. And it's also a case of, you can take your time to do something very specific. Um, Watching the second unit on Star Wars Fury Kingsman, I was like, I was blown away by the stuff that they did. And it's, it's, uh, it's fantastic to watch anything to do with stunts because it's something that for various reasons, I, I haven't gone down the stunt avenue. I've made sure that the stunt stays very close to me, but I put that into the acting as a, as opposed to the other way. And, the fact that I've got so many good friends in stunts as well means that second unit stuff is something that massively appeals to me. Um, so I think directing a whole film is something I'll wait until I've had a bit more experience in the industry. Um, but yeah, definitely anything that would be go away and film this explosion. Yes, of course, hundred percent. Yeah. One thing we've always done since the time, you know, we were really young when the movie ends, we stay in our seats and we watch the credits. We're, we're usually like the last people to leave a movie. And when you see the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people that work on a film, I don't think people really appreciate what goes into behind the scenes and how many units and all that. I, I'm so glad you said that because I, I thought I was the only one. Um, <laughs> I... I always do it because I think that it's a certain amount of pay and respect um, to a film to watch the end and to watch the credits. And there's also the whole thing of you're always going to learn something from it. Um, like if there was something that you couldn't quite tell about camera angles or the lighting, but 
you wait and you see who the gaffer was or you see who the sparks were little little things that make a huge difference mm-hmm. and then suddenly you're like oh that's why that was shot that way or you can't quite put your finger on who why all these actors are together oh it's casted by xyz and that for me you're always going to take something away from it and it's it's helped me because you understand how relationships build and how you can then do that for yourself um because the one thing about film now seems to be is that everyone's building their own little teams everyone's got a dop of first to second that works together intrinsically and one doesn't come without the other the vast majority of the time so yeah i i love watching the credits it's just all my friends have left by that point yeah yeah exactly now what is the um you know we, we've been uh, of course everybody's been dealing with this pandemic and, and mike and i were talking and wondering what's what's the current state of and, and actually we've written about this the current state of going to the movies where you know all these huge blockbusters are getting delayed and productions are shut down so how are things there and and how has your own work been impacted by that so um i'm I'm quite lucky because i find i i get a lot of news given to me uh, by people that are on various different projects i mean batman's filming in scotland at the moment jurassic park is filming in pinewood um i it's a weird one because i think there are different levels of how serious people are taking things and I don't mean any disrespect in that in that sense. It's just the case of, I mean, I've I've had maybe twenty COVID tests since since March. Um, every sort of invasive test you can think of. At one point, I'm sure she, the the testing lady, scraped the back of my skull. Um, oh man, it's <laughs> unreal. Um, it, it's absolutely insane. Uh, I I think it gave everyone a shock as to how quick things can change and how much we were reliant on things being the way they always were. And the ability to adapt has been something that has seen a lot of companies struggle with. Um, And also one person being sick now affects 200, 300 people. Um, Whereas before you turn up, if you had a cold or a a slight temperature, it's, it's not something that can happen. So yeah, I think, from my perspective, the industry is starting to adapt, but it hasn't quite got there yet. Um, I mean, for instance, one person in one department gets sick. That entire department is out for two weeks. Um, Robert Pattinson returned a positive test and Batman was shut yep. down for a month. Um, yep. So, yeah, it, it's it hasn't affected me. I've done five, six projects since March. And it's it's one of those where it's either luck of the draw or whatever it might be. I mean, I'm, as much as I, I don't think I'm going to get sick, um, I, I play by the rules. I wear a mask, all that sort of stuff. Um, and I, I think it's going to be very much a case of the industry will find a way to adjust. Tenet has proved that you can't release anything. Um, I think it's still 93 million in the red. Um, and I think it's put a lot of people off going to the cinema. Because whereas before, I didn't necessarily, not that I would sit next to anyone. I can't stand sitting next to anyone. If I'm going to the cinema, I need 20 seats around me, silent. (laughs) That sounds familiar. (laughs) No one will be eating. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I will go to the midnight showing just to guarantee no one's there. But yeah, I think the experience will never be the same anymore. Um, I'm actually a big advocate for cinema at home. 
I I believe that there there is a structure that can be made now based on streaming platforms, based on access to media, that there should be the choice of whether you watch something at home or at the cinema on the same day. Um, Disney Plus proved it with Mulan that you can release something and get it straight into people's homes and millions of people will watch it. For me, it's just a case of the big six studios finding a way that that works because the cinema experience shouldn't be killed off. It's something intrinsic about our society and being in close quarters to share an experience. I mean, I'm lucky enough to have um, seen the Lord of the Rings films where people got up and applauded, Mm -hmm. you know, things like that. Um, They shouldn't be lost to time ever. Um, But at the same time, society changes and streaming platforms are proved, especially with the abundance of Netflix and prime that you can put entire um, multi-million pound projects just on the platform. Uh, Bright was a perfect example of giving Will Smith a platform to do it. And yeah, I loved that film. I thought it was awesome. And I, I got a Netflix subscription because of that. So th- those sort of things do work. Um, I just, I, I would hate for this pandemic to be the reason that we lose cinema. Yeah. And that I've written about it several times because it seems like, you know, like the cinemas that used to play like old Hitchcock. I'm a big fan of film noir and, and classics. And, and I love to see him in the movie theater, you know, cause yeah. usually you have to watch him on home video, but a lot of those small cinemas are dying off and even Regal, I don't know. Do you have Regal in the UK? Regal died off for us 10 years ago. Uh, well, they were still alive, but now they've pulled the plug. Yeah. And I, I'm worried. You know, I'm worried that that experience is going to be different. I, I'm, I'm of the same mindset as you. Um, my, my thought was when the argument that, oh, there aren't enough new releases to warrant the cinema, I, my first thought was, because I've, I've just ordered the top 100 movies scratch poster. Right. Just to prove that I can scratch off all of them. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> but um, what it was, was like, I looked at Picture House and Cineworld, and I was like, you have a back catalogue of thousands of films, and you've got no excuse not to put Casablanca or right. Citizen Kane, whatever it might be put that film on. I would pay to go watch um, The Dirty Dozen, 100%. Yep. And uh, we, we have Everyman Cinema here, which has like um, leather seats that recline and things like that. Make that, that experience where you can go and watch a film in all its glory, you know, because that's, that's the fundamental for me is the fact that some films you have to experience big screen, otherwise you lose something. There's yeah. a there's a certain je ne sais quoi you lose from a film not being in a big screen format. So yeah, from my perspective, I think there's a real argument for back catalogs to be put back out into the, I know Disney will never do it, but when you look at Universal and Paramount, the films that they've got that you could easily do a week's showing of Casablanca or any, any number of, um, Humphrey Bogart films, anything like that. When suddenly that appreciation again, I've just rewatched a load of the old Sinatra films. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So like um, 
Sinatra's version of Robin Hood and and Ocean's Eleven, and I was like, I had no appreciation for for this era of filmmaking, yeah. and I should. And realizing how good the Rat Pack were or what they did, and then suddenly it was like, well, this would be awesome at the cinema, and an experience that was lost to the fifties and sixties, which we have no excuse that we can't do it now. Yeah. You know, Sinatra did so many films that people missed because they, our generation, we think of him as a singer. Yes. But he's done a ton of film, you know, man with the golden arm, all sorts of things I can think of. It's so funny. You brought up Casablanca. I just watched it yesterday (laughs) on, on, at home. It was, it's still as great as it was, you know, when I first saw it. Casablanca is just one of those where if, if not just for the story, but for how that film was put together and the fact that the vast majority of it is on a soundstage is yeah. absolutely insane. I mean, the final yeah. sequence in that film is on a soundstage in a back lot and they, they got, um, <clears throat> i use the right word here, they got small people to be in the back of shot to look like they were in the distance right. and, mm-hmm. and the snow is a mix of asbestos and sugar. Uh, it, it's absolutely amazing. And I was like, if I didn't know that, I wouldn't know that. Whereas nowadays you can sort of tell when things are a bit hokey and the quality is still there to this day. We talked a lot about Kubrick in the last several episodes and, you know, it's hard I, yeah, he's uh, he's one of my favorite directors. But as I've joked with Mike, I had only seen a handful of his films up until recently. So to be able to see some of those, like Pass yeah. of Glory and, and some of those on the big screen would be, that that might get me to the theater. I think with, with people that have a series of good films, it's very easy to go and miss the ones that fall through the cracks. And Kubrick is a perfect example of that, where everyone goes shining, Clockwork Orange, and they pick out the big ones. But even even to like um, Space Odyssey, people don't go back past or, and the same with um, Spielberg and Cameron, where you've got THX 1138 and these films that get, like I say, lost to time. And it's a perfect chance now when 400 million pound films aren't making their money to go, right, we have space, we have time. You can sit three people apart, but here's what Kubrick did in 1970 something. Yeah. The first movie I made him watch when we started, this was the killers with Sterling Hayden, which is, which is a phenomenal film. So talk about Jamie, talk about, you know, I saw in, in looking at some of the info on IMDb, it's a lot of a lot of projects that are, you know, in the works. Or you know, can you talk a, a little bit about you know what you got going yeah. on? Yeah, I mean, the first um, the the big thing that I have on the works at the moment uh, with my business partner Winston Ellis um, is the Beast, which is when Eddie met Arnie. We were we going to ask you about that? this. Yeah, are we going to get that. Yeah, is it released yeah, just yeah. this weekend, right? No, no, no. Um, that was a clerical error. That should have been October 21. <laughs> oh, okay. So you're in pre still. Uh, no, we, we are fully in production. Um, oh, okay. So what's happened is 
we, we wrote off six months of this project after February. We were just like, everything goes on hold, everything stops. We, the project as a whole is absolutely incredible and I'm incredibly lucky to be a part of it. Um, not just the Schwarzenegger thing. Eddie Hall's story is fantastic and it's a story that has to be told. Um, to be the world's strongest man is an amazing feat in itself. Um, mm -hmm. The amount of dedication, time, effort, sacrifice that goes into that. Um, it's also the perfect vehicle for something that is far more... Um, uh, it, it, it goes across a plethora of different things. So for us, we're touching on mental health. We're touching on max masculinity, where it is to be a, a sports performer, where it is to be elite. Um, depression, the trials of being a sports performer, but also what happens next. And that's the key thing. Um, if, if you look at Schwarzenegger, Cena, Johnson, Weathers, all these iconic actors, they all had, and Jackie Chan, Jackie Chan and Jet Li, um, they all had a past which has nothing to do with film and TV in any way. Um, they're all elite sports performers. So what happens when you can't do that anymore? What happens when you can no longer be in that profession, whether it's age or just physically you can't do it? Um, and I'm misstating off that list, and that's that's a naughty. I shouldn't have done that. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, uh, so following Eddie as he follows Arnold's path has been incredible. Uh, we we go out, we follow Eddie out to Graz uh, to the Arnold Museum, which is an incredible place to be. Um, it's Arnold's old house, old family home, and it's been retrofitted with uh, Terminator, Conan memorabilia you can you can lie in arnold's bed which is absolutely amazing what is it um, like a museum almost yeah, it's the arnold museum yeah ah. it's incredible um and then what we've done is we found a way to bring those two stories together um eddie's first um real real sort of memory of arnold is pretty much very similar to mine it's terminator so what we did is um, in Eddie's hometown, we found a bar that looks very similar to the bar in Terminator 2, in the opening sequence. And what we've done is we've recreated the Terminator 2 bar sequence, but with Eddie as oh. the T-800. Oh, that's so, cool. Yeah, and then we've got various other things where we look at Eddie's mindset and how he was going to drop the bar um, at this iconic deadlift. And then out of the corner of his eye, Arnold was there and Arnold tells him put it up and there's this there's this amazing picture of Arnold with his thumb like that get it up and that was the difference that was the tipping point and that moved that got Eddie to that point so they're intertwined their stories sort of the, the reason Eddie is where he is is the help of Arnold so it makes sense for us now that Eddie's moving into acting and performing that Arnold be that mentor that um that guiding person through that. So the beast is going to be fantastic and it's going to touch on a lot more things than just film and sport. It's going to be looking at depression, mental health, anxiety, uh, what it is to define who you are as a person. Um, the, the toll of wanting to be the best at something, um, 
does it mean that you have personal sacrifice and is that personal sacrifice warranted is that worth more than your personal life so yeah that that project as a whole i'm very lucky to be involved with it there's an incredible list of crew and producers and execs on this that have done an absolutely amazing job um hopefully we'll be out in america to finish it off relatively soon um and then we look at the global theatrical release after that yeah good we're, we're looking forward to it. it it sounds fascinating when you read even the little description they had it you know with the depression and, and you know dan's got a background mental health and yeah we were glad like you, you you brought it up because it, like mike studied psychology and i've worked in the mental health field for a little while and you know that stigma that still exists around that topic and uh threading that theme and putting a spotlight on that with a character or a man who's larger than life like you said that machismo thing that goes along with that and very very interesting i can't wait to see that yeah i i think with depression and mental health um i mean i had my own fight a few years back and i mean one of the reasons i am where i am is because i i'd grounded out i had already hit zero um uh, this is, I was in my twenties, but it was, couldn't get out of bed, didn't want to go to work. It, it, it was a toxic environment that I was in um, and all those sort of things. And it was an inspiration. It was a jumping off point. It was like, it's only going to spiral worse. It's, it, it's, and it doesn't matter what people say about where you are or what you're doing or any of those things, because it's you and yours and it's in your head and you can't, as much as you want to, you can't fight that battle in your own head. That, that's something that you, you find a way out of it, but fighting it isn't going to work. Um, so for me, it was finding that change. It was knowing that if I can get this change and find a new avenue that isn't toxic, that is what I want to do, it doesn't matter how hard it is, but it is what I want to do. That's the difference. And a lot of people ask me about like, the, the the big depression word and things like that and there's no cookie cutter way of getting through any scenario like that and you can't just go to someone and say don't be depressed anymore it it, mm-hmm. it doesn't work like that and it doesn't and it doesn't matter who you are or what you are or what you're doing it will just come and find you and i mean so many examples of people who outside looking in they've got it all and yeah. they have it all. And one of the hardest things that hit me, um, I'm a massive metal fan. Um, I mean, Slipknot, Linkin Park, mm. um, Korn are some of my favorite bands of all time. Um, they're, they're my chill out music. Mm-hmm. And Chester, Chester Bennington's um, death in 2016, uh, it, it was amazing for someone that I'd never met. And yet, I knew him intrinsically and that, that, that was hard because you're angry. You're angry at what has happened. And it's not until you, I I had to stop listening to Linkin Park for a long time because I, I couldn't, I couldn't differentiate between the music and what had now happened. And it's only looking back at what he was saying and what his battle was and looking at that and then going, that's where the help was. That's 
that, that's what he needed and that's where the music came from and the music helped millions and the, the, the cliche is you can't help yourself you can only help others but at the same time it, it, it that hit harder than I thought it could and it's in, it's an incredible thing that, to think about depression in that sense because it like I say it doesn't matter who you are it, it, it just that. Yeah, yeah. It Dan, Dan, Dan worked in a in a place where he, you know, a couple of people committed suicide, and and I remember us talking about it. I had a, as tough a time dealing with it as he did, yeah. just knowing he was in that environment, and you know, you want to help, and but your hands are tied. How do you yeah, help? That's yeah, right, right. You know, just before we leave the beast, I just you're producing that or one of the producers and how, how did you get into that that area with film and tv it's awesome because i can pick up a book and my, my favorite book of all time I, I will answer the question my favorite book is a film filmmaker's guide for dummies and mm. <laughs> or filmmaking for dummies and it's amazing because it goes this is what a director does this is what a first AD does and so on and so on. And then the very last paragraph is, this is what a producer does. And it's like that. <laughs> right. and, but for me, it's always been a case of, I want to learn and I want to know and I want to do. And I would rather be proactively learning what a DOP does or a first AD does or a gaffer does and work it out. And then from that point, you have no appreciation for the amount of work and effort that goes into something. So the producing side came about from wanting the the challenge and the ability to make my own stuff. Um, and for the most part, it's been a case of I've stepped onto other people's projects to help them. And I, I'm, I'm very OCD analytical. Um, there's, there's just post-it notes and lists and stuff everywhere. <laughs> but the reason being is, I, I'd, I'd make that a proactive thing and I, I don't walk into a room and flick the light switch on a thousand times, but, um, <laughs> yeah, that's what, when you say OCD, that's what people think of. Yeah. My, my, mine, mine is everything is logical. Everything's done and everything's ticked off. Um, but yeah, so production was one of those where it was like, Oh wow, this is the dark arts. This is, this is how things get made. Right. And it was amazing for me because I was like, Oh no, no, you just give it to someone. And then they put it in a cinema and that's it. It's like, no, no. Producer job starts before development. And for me, learning all that was amazing. It was eye opening because suddenly before you sort of start looking at what a finished product looks like, you are looking back at identifying if a story works. And then if that story works, then okay, fine. How do we build the team to make it work? Do we need a ghostwriter? Do we need an analyst? Do we have to build this in a different way? Is it the wrong genre for the, the script? And then you pass it on and get into pre-production. And Is the casting right? And all this filters back up to the producer and then back down to the HODs. And for me, I figured if I learn it sooner, I've got more time to be better at it. And I, I will never proclaim to be the best at anything, but I will certainly try to do the best at everything. And film production was one of those where I was like, 
I want to be able to make good quality films that have a reason, that have a meaning. Um, the whole thing that we do at our production company is compelling films that have a social change element to them. So with The Beast, it's mental health. Uh, with Let No Man Know, we're looking at race, we're looking at class and caste and um, the social divide and the poverty divide. Um, so we've got analogues for, even though we're telling a period story, we've got a contemporary reason for telling it. And if it hasn't got that contemporary reason, then personally it doesn't hold any weight for me because I I want to be able to at least offer a chance for change, at least a vehicle, a voice for that change. Um, and that's the power of film is that it can give that voice. Absolutely. Yeah. It's that pay it forward mentality in through the art, really. Exactly that. Um, I, I, I don't, um, I don't necessarily believe that any one person's one voice is, is going to be the, the feather that, or the, the stick that breaks the camel's back. But I do believe that if you give a vehicle for enough voices, that's the difference. Mm -hmm. And especially with mental health and toxic, uh, toxic masculinity and all these elements that on their own are very small, not small, but they're niche things to talk about because every single one of them has its own thing. But if you bring it all together and put it into one vehicle, then you can talk about each part and come back to it, which is stronger in itself. Aside from the beast, what, what else is, uh, so I'm, I'm super excited about let no man know. Um, it's the real life story of Tom Molyneux, who was a Mandingo fighter and a free slave in 1800. This all happened. This is all true. Um, his father was a Mandingo fighter for a plantation owner in Louisiana and to save his father's life, because usually what happened, and this is gross, but, Mandingo fighters were either put out to pasture or they were put down. Um, so to save his father's life, he said he would become a Mandingo fighter. Um, there was a, a guy called Mr. Davies who trained Tom to become a fantastic pugilist. During this sequence, we have this thing where the two rival plantation owners uh, make a bet of each other's plantation on one fight. And it's a take winner winner takes all situation and tom wins his freedom from slavery out of this fight and becomes a free black man in america he then with mr davies becomes an awesome pugilist travels to new york doing bare knuckle bare knuckle fighting um on the night that he's meant to leave new york to london um his trainer is killed and he's left on his own with half the money that he's earned on a boat to London, and now he's a, a lone black man, 1812 in London. And this is where the real crux of the story kicks off. Um, the first day he sets foot in London, he's mugged, and all his money and all his possessions are stolen. So now he's an alone black man in London. It's the least tolerant time in history. Um, and he sources, he finds out about this guy called Bill Richmond. And Bill Richmond was the first free black man in London. And Bill Richmond is the only black man of that time period to have met royalty. 
um he was a, a publican but he was also a boxer and he taught all the royals to box and tom sources him out and then we go on this whole story of um what slaves were treated like in london and then how he became the ultimate pugilist of the time and then what happened to stop him becoming the champion of britain the boxing champion so we've got a huge story to tell there is uh fascinating absolutely amazing and for for the better phrase it's django meets warrior via london um (laughs) i was thinking of django that you know the sequence where you know they have the two guys fight to the death basically yeah Um, and i mean that's very tarantino fight but it's not far off what did happen in that sense so we've got that um we and that is our allegory for race caste poverty, social divide, all those sort of things. And it's never been more prevalent than it is now. Here in the U.S., we're, we're going through an incredible division right now, the worst in my lifetime. And, you know, I, I wondered how the diversity is over in London within the film industry and just, you know, within your country. So diversity has been huge in the last few years, and I'm a massive proponent. Um, not of equality, but of equity. And I, 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 I always bring up this analogy, the, um, the analogy of the five boxes. So you've got three people on a fence. If everyone gets two, uh, six boxes, if everyone gets two boxes, some people still can't see. But if some people get three, some people get two, some people get one, but everyone can see over the fence, that's equity. And that's everyone getting the same. And I, I couldn't be more behind that. I think everyone needs that opportunity. Everyone needs that voice. And it's great that regardless of what people might think of the BLM movement as a whole, what it has done is put the spotlight in the right area and it has forced the story to be told and for issues, the wrong word, but for the actual scope of the problem to be finally put forthright. And there are so many stories to be told from that. Um, stories of fantastic people from the BAME community that those stories need to be told. And it's, I, I myself had had enough of whitewashing. It, 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 it English phrase, it did my nothing. It really did. It, it was one of those where, okay, that's just gross and that's unnecessary. Um, I, I still believe that if you're right for the role, you're right for the role. Um, and, credit goes to you being the best performer you can be but at the same time there needs to be that access there needs to be that availability and that openness to talk about it and to do it um so yeah it's definitely going in the right way i would say there is a long way to go um i'd I'd hate there to be any ill feeling about this it's it's a change that needed to happen it's um and if you look at some of the projects coming through now, I mean, Tenet is a perfect example, absolutely fantastic and so well done. And again, as long as it's not tokenism, it's perfect. There's nothing worse than it being tokenism for the sake of it. I think a South Park episode did it really well recently, highlighting what's going on with you guys over there. And as long as the story's right, the casting is right and the opportunity is right, those three things aligned that's what brings something together under diversity equality equity 
all those things and it's done for the right reasons. What do you, what is your take? It, it makes me think now, cause Mike and I talked about this and again, it was another blog that he put out, but the announcement recently by the Academy of these new inclusion um, criteria for the Academy Awards. I don't know if you followed that at all. I just was curious your thoughts I, on that. I, I, I have a major bone to pick with the Academy. Um, so my first big bone to pick with them is the fact that everything is on delay now with the Academy because of this. There was this one film, it was a, a man and his dog, and it was like, a, oh, we've got to give this guy an Oscar before he won't get another chance. And then that put everyone one step out. So I have that problem that people aren't getting their recognition for the time that they need to be recognized. And DiCaprio, perfect example, not getting the recognition he needed when he should have had it. He had to go and eat a liver out of a dead horse right. just to get it. Exactly. Exactly. Um, where, whereas um, I don't. I haven't. I don't necessarily have an issue with the word inclusion, but I hate the way it's being used because it still feels like, oh yeah, we'll just put that out there and that'll shut everyone up. And that's not what it should be. It, it it shouldn't be a ratio system or a quota system. It should be they're awesome at their job, recognize them for it. End of. Um, and again, last year, uh, no female directors um, yeah. up for um, an Academy Award. Um, I don't, I, I don't necessarily want to see female directors, male directors to awards that, that, that for me, that, that seems weird, but mm-hmm. I do think projects need to be taken on their merit and it needs to be a case of people that are more current are looking at it. I, th- I think the board at the Academy needs an overhaul. Um, I think the membership needs to change because it needs to reflect society. It doesn't need to reflect a board of governors on a, a company that, that, that for me is not what film is. And a modern board, a contemporary board of people that are selecting projects based on their contemporary relevance, but also the fact that if they are a quality project or not. So yeah, for me, as much as I dislike the word inclusion, um, it's, it's the best of a bad idea at the moment. And it, it, there, there is a better way to do it. Yeah. Mike and I talked early on about we shared our top five films. And I said, we got to ask Jamie, like, you're on a desert island. What's that list of films that, that you got? And, you know, it's funny because it, it sounds like from what you've said, you've mentioned commentary and director's cuts and all these things. And Mike and I have battled this out for the last few years where I've gone almost exclusive digital where Mike's still Mike's hardcore physical copies and he loves all the extras as do I, but you know, the clutter and that's where you speak, talk about OCD. That's that comes into play for me, but it sounds like, are you, are you a huge physical movie collector? You mentioned VHS earlier. So uh, I have about 3000 DVDs. He's my kind. He's your man right there. (laughs) I bought a load just based on the fact that I had to do so much research and it was easier at the time because this is pre-Netflix and Amazon. It was easier for me to um, get a hard copy for a quid than it was to go and try and find somewhere to watch it. So, yeah, um, I, 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 the top five is an incredibly hard thing it's to hard. do. 
But, um, I mean... Well, we know Terminator 2 and a Statham movie. Those are got to be there. I, I think I think it would have to be Terminator 2, Aliens. Um, and then, <laughs> then it gets hard. Um, the first Matrix, mm. I think. Um, then, all right, okay. Citizen Kane. And that was uh, on my list. There you go. And Shawshank, I think. Oh, that's a good pick. If if I was to pick those five, but then you're missing Casablanca out of that, Gone with the Wind, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, um, and then like Godfather. <laughs> I haven't I haven't mentioned a single James Dean film. Bullets not on there. So. Giant. So many films, so little time. You know, one thing real quick before we, we, we bring it to a close or take up more of your time, but I was intrigued looking, is it, I'm not going to get the, the full title right. It's something Yellow Creek. I think it's a Western. That's yeah. Not, I got to hear a, about that. So that's a, that's a British indie that's going ahead in 2021. Um, but that, that was one of those where it was like, I haven't done a Western. I'm, I'm not involved in a Western. And um, this character, Mackenzie, is very much uh, a Sam Rockwell type character, a bit, bit of a loose cannon. Um, so, yeah, Yellow Creek is one of those where I was like, okay, I'm, I'm intrigued. I'm <laughs> so it's going to be one of those where it's got five storylines all playing off each other and it's, it's going to be insane to shoot because it's low budget British indie and it's all about this one small town. And then what happens when these rival gangs use just this one town as like their center stage. Um, and it's got a revenge storyline in it. Um, uh, the sheriff has got a dark secret. It, it's insane. It, it really is. And the guys at Loose Grip are fantastic people. Um, they A lot happens on camera for not much cost with these guys. Um, mm. Kieran Davies, a lovely guy, awesome. He, he messaged me. He was like, um, yeah, love this idea for this Western. And um, we need you to play someone who's a little bit unhinged. I was like, yeah, got that covered. Not a problem. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I'm very much looking forward to that. Sounds like it's it's you going outside of your comfort zone a little bit. It's really um, it's really cool because I'm inherently not a violent or particularly aggressive person, like at all. Um, it's it's not something that comes naturally to me. So when I get given violent, unhinged, vaguely aggressive. It takes a lot. It takes a lot more work, and suddenly it's a challenge. So for me, it was like, yeah, okay, great. I've actually got to learn this. I've actually got to go and work out how I make this work. So I think it's an excuse to watch those Sam Rockwell films, which <laughs> is never a bad thing. No. Um, so yeah, I mean, I'm very much looking forward to that. I, I'm. I'm. I've got. A few, I've got a load of projects coming up actually, where I'm on screen. Um, I've just signed to do um, a film called Morris Men, which is mm. this really cool mix of the Kingsman and the Crow. Uh, so it's like um, 
an underground assassin type world, um, all based around. We, we, do you know what Morris men are? No, educated. They're the guys that have the bells on their feet, dance around, tapping sticks and stuff. Is uh, it's really off the wall. Um, <laughs> but the idea is that's a front for this like assassin organization. So I've got to learn Eskrima martial arts for that because it's all two-handed fighting. It's all with like uh, uh, double stick work and that sort of thing. Um, so that's uh, early 20. We start previs now, um, but that'll be early 2021. Um, so that that's going to be absolutely insane to do. Um, I think at one point I've got a 15 on one fight sequence. Um, so that that'll be fun. So does that keep you in the gym like every day for <laughs> hours? I, I love the gym. Um, I, I train twice a day. Um, so I give up my lunch break and I go to the gym because I'd rather get an hour's training in than sit and eat. Um, so since February, I've lost almost 30 kilos in weight. Um, I, I went on a keto diet. Um, lots of running, lots of cardio. Um, so I was about 120, 125 kilos. I'm down to about 90, 93 now. Um, so, um, I don't know what that is in American money, but, um, I I think I've lost like two and a bit stone. Um, (laughs) so so it's been one of those where it's really helped because I was really heavy and it was hard to move and you look gross and all that sort of stuff. And you're like, Oh my God, god i gotta look at myself in the mirror and (laughs) (laughs) instead it was like motivation time um i've got a special forces film coming up and then with this martial arts stuff um so i'm working on the heavy bag every day um i'm getting back making sure the kickboxing is nice and uh, nice and tight and then on top of that it's making sure that physically i'm at a point that's sustainable it's manageable um We've got previous photo shoots coming up, so it'll be a case of no, Jamie, you still look soft. Like, <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I'm looking forward to it. I know I've heard you say that you're not big on self promotion, but hopefully, you won't mind that we, you know, we, we're going to be excited to promote uh, all of these upcoming projects. And I usually, you know, we'll we'll get this episode out, and then I go hardcore and trying to, awesome. you know, push this out. So we'd be excited to do that, and you know. Not only thanking you for giving us your time today, but it's really it's inspiring to hear the kind of things that you're infusing into a lot of the work that you're doing. You know, you don't hear that a lot. It's easy. It, it I would assume could be easy to just sort of put films out and do work that doesn't necessarily carry with it any major themes. Or it's, that's really that's really inspiring. I think I think it 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 would be incredibly easy just to put projects out for the sake of it. It would it. And it would be very easy just to say yes to everything and just be done with it. And that for me wasn't the reason I got into this anyway. And now more than ever, and I, I, I say that with the gravitas it needs, is the time to really push change and to push social issues and to really make, to one, take a stand because the arts in this country has to make a stand. Because otherwise, we're going to lose them, and we're going to lose a lot of good people out of creative industries and innovative industries. So for me, it has to be about telling the right story, and it has to be 
with a message because that message you don't know who it'll affect you don't know who it will hit and that in itself is incredibly strong well that's what i mean any good art should do i mean regardless of what if it's music or film or you know exactly so well you paid it forward today for us for sure and And we appreciate it (laughs) Yeah. I've loved it, guys. This has it's been, been a fantastic. great time. Yeah, we hope that you know when when some of these projects, uh, these 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 others are coming out soon. That you know we could extend an invitation for you to come back and Just talk some the more. Word and I'll be there. Not yeah, a fantastic. It's been great. Thank you so Cheers, much. Buddy. All right, you stay safe, Jamie. We'll talk to you soon. Take care, guys. All right. All right. Bye bye. Thanks. Good guy. Really good guy. I mean, that was, uh, again, generous with his time and uh, by just really fascinating stories. I, I really liked hearing about. He's one a real thing, student of film. Yes. And he's driven. And one thing I want to bring up about the segment that got cut is he talked about Arnold and, and Sly being guys that he admires, and which he's getting the chance to work with Arnold right now. And that was kind of his number one guy. One of the things I brought up to him, knowing Arnold the way I know him from a distance, was this is a guy who is driven Mm -hmm. to succeed at everything and anything he does. And that's what Jamie said, how, and again, I think it was in that piece that we lost, but how it was a blueprint, not just for being successful in film. For life. Bodybuilding or, yeah, any avenue in life that you pursue. And I see the same thing in him. Mm -hmm. I see that drive, that desire. I mean, we're two chuckleheads and he, he gave us two hours of his time, like nothing, you know, and I was just going to, yeah, I was going to say the humility too, you know, just, uh, I think that carries you as far as any, any innate talent that you might have. And as, as hard as you work to screw this up, (laughs) <laughs> he he rolled right with the punch he did he did he was a, he was a great sport and uh we, we look forward to having him back on again in the future hopefully he will he yeah. wasn't just patronizing me he was saying this clown doesn't know what he's doing over here with me. <laughs> you know, I, he's certainly not going to be an editor on any of my films yeah good luck uh <laughs> if, if he doesn't return your email you'll know why yeah no kidding blocked what do you mean blocked <laughs> So, so make sure that you guys check Jamie's workout, uh, his, uh, his IMDB, you can find his resume there. And as he talks, there's a lot of, a lot of exciting projects to come. Yes. That, that are coming out. And, and I'm and really looking forward to the beast least, in particular. There's two that are really, really intriguing. Well, yeah. And, and the, the one about the Mandingo fighter and that was, that was fascinating yeah. too. And, and, I think he said he had five in the works right now. Mm-hmm. So he's yeah. a busy guy. busy guy. Like I said, I think he's driven. I think this is a guy that is, he's got talent. It's going to be a special actor. Yeah. And I think, again, it's, it's the right heart and head. You know what I mean? It's, it's, yeah. you can't, you can't really learn or teach those things. I think it's just something that he's, he seems like a good person, you know? Yeah. He's so, driven and he's also a nice guy. 
Well, don't forget to uh, check out all things O Brother. You can you can find us on uh, our official website, OHB is in brother podcast.com, OHBpodcast.com. This episode with Jamie will be uh, live on our website, uh, both the audio version and, and the video interview. So, you know, we encourage you to, to check those out and Mike's blog. A lot of it's been active lately, two or three in the last yeah. couple of weeks. And I've got two in the. In, in, in the, the pre-production, in pre-production, <laughs> previs, as Jamie yeah, would say. Yeah. Well, that's going to do it for another episode. I've been your host, Dan Smith. Alongside me, as always, my brother from the same mother, Mike Smith, and we will see you next time. Here, last time I tried to do the red rum thing, and it was a disaster. And I wanted to do an Arnold, <laughs> but I'm so pathetic. I would say goodbye as Arnold, but I can't. You, I give it to us. Give it. I can't. It, you just, his famous line, it fits perfectly from Terminator. We'll be back, everyone. <laughs> Horrible. Horrible stuff. Hi everyone, this is Cindy Busby and you're listening to the O Brother Podcast.